0: I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We started a series about uh, six weeks ago, I think it was, on uh, going through verse by verse, and uh, we have worked our way in those six weeks up to the beginning of the third chapter. So, um, as you can see, um, it takes some time. At least it takes me some time to get through there. Uh, So we'll talk about the first half of the third chapter tonight, if all goes well. Um, The book of Hebrews is, in my opinion, um, the one book of the Bible that... Well, I'll say it for me personally. I, I won't try to make this judgment for everybody else. But for me, I get more out of the book of Hebrews when I understand the context more than any other book that's, uh, that the Bible, that's in the Bible. Certainly more than any other New Testament writing. The letters that Paul wrote to the, to the church as well as the letters that uh, John and, and Peter wrote, they can stand on their own because he describes enough about what's going on to where you know what the context is. But the book of Hebrews is a little bit uh, more difficult to understand. One of the first problems we have is who wrote the book. It's um, We've talked about this. I won't rehash a lot of things, but I, I do think it's important for us to make a couple of comments about this. And that is, if we don't know who wrote the book, then there's a lot of things that we're going to miss. Because whoever the author was understood that the people that he's writing to would know that he wrote it. If they didn't, if the if the author didn't know who, if the author didn't expect the the people reading the letter to know who wrote it, then there's a lot of things left unsaid. There's a lot of things left uh, unexplained. Peter said that Paul wrote a letter to the Hebrews. We know that Peter's letter came after the book of Hebrews was written. I'm satisfied that it's Paul's letter to the to the Hebrews. If if not, if it's not Paul's letter to the Hebrews, then where is the one that he wrote? We furthermore know that this letter was intended where it probably was not originally sent. Paul said something in Galatians chapter 6 about, you see what a large letter I've written. Large does not mean how big a letter is he wrote, you know, how tall the letters were, but how long the letter was. And so he said, you see what a long letter I wrote to you. Well, the book of Galatians in and of itself is not a long letter. The book of Romans is much bigger than, than the book than the letter to the Galatians. The book of uh, Corinthians, both letters to the Corinthians, were longer than the ones that he wrote to the Galatians. Yet he identified the Galatians as an, as an especially long letter. We have historical uh, evidence, not conclusive. I mean, it's still up for, for judgment, individual judgment. But we've got uh, some historical evidence that um, the book of Hebrews was attached to the book of Galatians. Well, that makes sense because the problem with the Galatian church was, the, was that the, the Jews were trying to tear it up. And so everything that Paul wrote to the Galatians was trying to to convince them, don't go for what the Jews are telling you, remember what I taught you instead. But if that is the case, then Paul certainly would have expected the letter that he wrote to the Jews to be taken back to Jerusalem, to be copied and taken back to Jerusalem. So he knows that he's talking not only to the Jews that are there in Galatia, that are trying to tear up the church in Galatia, if we are correct in our assumption that the two letters were attached or connected but he also knows that he's going to get this information to those Jews in Jerusalem, which are made up at least in some part, we don't know to, to what extent, but in some part by the priesthood. It may be that even the high priest himself was part of the church at Jerusalem. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of commingling, if you will, between Christians and Jews in the, in the city of Jerusalem, in the church of Jerusalem, and not all the Jews that were in the church were saved. Paul tells us what the problem was with the Jews. He writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, I think it is, somewhere around there. He said, but we preach Christ crucified, and to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. So he identifies, and here's the context that I'm talking about. We know a lot of things that Paul doesn't go into detail about in the book of Hebrews. We know that the book of Galatians was one of the last letters that Paul wrote. So if the book of Hebrews was attached to the book of Galatians, then that means that the churches would be familiar with Paul's teaching. The church of Jerusalem would certainly be familiar with Paul's teaching. Probably had certain copies of letters that he wrote to other churches. So where we have the the, the Bible as as it exists today, we're able to to look over to certain references and other letters that he wrote and compare the things that uh, that he says in the book of Hebrews and get even more detail about certain things. They would have perhaps had the same information, and so maybe that's the reason why he doesn't go into some of the detail with the Jews that he went with the Gentile letters that he wrote. For that reason, he identifies, as I said, the Jews' biggest problem, and that is how could Christ, which is the name for deity, how could Christ be crucified? How do you kill God? If he can't, if he can't overcome that objection with the Jews, he's got nothing. And folks, you need to realize that's the very reason that why Paul was persecuting the church before his name was Paul when he was Saul. That's the reason Saul was persecuting the church, because he bought into the same idea. God can't die. This idea of Jesus being crucified and raised from the dead, that's impossible because God can't die, much less be raised from the dead. How do you raise God from the dead? You can see the different the, the difficulty in the thinking of the Jewish mindset. So Paul deals with that. first two chapters of the book of Hebrews is talking about superior, um, uh, Jesus' superiority to the angels. He starts off with the angels because in the Jewish mindset, the angels are just below God. Paul goes through and identifies how Jesus laid aside, we know from the book, from what he wrote, the information that he wrote to the Philippians, he must assume that they understand the thing, same thing that he'd been teaching. And you need to under- think of this through with me. If the Jews are trying to tear up Paul's churches... If the the pattern of the Jews, and, and the Bible shows us all throughout the book of Acts, that this is what the Jews did. The Jews would send people from Jerusalem and try to disrupt the churches that Paul started because they said, you still have to keep the law of Moses. We're not sure about this Jesus stuff, but you got to keep the law of Moses or else you can't be anything with God. So they're trying to reproselytize Christians into the Jewish law. Well, how are they going to do that? You can well understand that the Jews are sending educated people people that are trained in the law, people that are able to tie up in knots intellectually, if you will, those Gentile, those, uh, Gentile Christians that don't know anything about the law of Moses, they're going to te- send people that are in, able to instruct them in the law of Moses, and therefore they would have to be familiar with Paul, what Paul's teaching so that they could try to counteract it or contradict it. So Paul deals with things that he knows they know. So when he talks about Jesus laying aside his his heavenly power and glory, emptying himself of his heavenly power and glory to the Philippians, he knows they know that he teaches that. And so what does he do? He talks about how that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. The Old Testament reference is a little lower than the Godhead, Elohim. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew, in other words, it was the Bible of Jesus' day, it doesn't say Elohim. It doesn't talk about God. It talks about the angels. So he talks about how that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels and came to earth as a man. He identifies and, and, and proves from the Old Testament that Jesus, number one, was God, and number two, that he was all man. Now, that's a contradictory thought for the Jewish mindset as well. And so how does he explain that? Well, to the Philippians, he explains that by Jesus laying aside his heavenly power and glory. To the Jews, he identifies what the Old Testament says about his relationship to angels. He talks about how that the angels will worship the Messiah, the Christ. So he identifies that wherever Jesus, whoever the Messiah is, first and foremost, whoever he is, he's above the angels. But he came to the earth and he subjected himself to the sufferings of death so that he might defeat him who had the power of death and that is satan now folks here's a real important thing if jesus came to earth as god then god beat satan well duh who wouldn't expect that satan would be able to challenge the justice of god by saying well wait a minute i was i'm just an angel i'm a created being you defeated me as god who is much greater, the Creator is much greater than the creation, that's not fair. That's not right according to justice. If Jesus had come to the earth as an angel, we know He did many times in the Old Testament. The Bible talks about the angel of the Lord appeared, and that's always Jesus in operation. We know the three in one, the Godhead works together. God creates the plan, Jesus executes the plan, and the Holy Spirit reveals the plan. That's why the Bible says all things were made by Jesus. Well, I thought God was creator of the earth. He is. But he did it through Jesus. Jesus is the executor or the one that executes the plan. So everything that God has ever done, Jesus was his hand to do that. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus sits on the right hand of God because it represents his position from the beginning of time. So if he came to earth as God and defeated the the devil, then that wouldn't be a real defeat. If he came to earth as the angel and defeated Satan as an equal, then all we could say is now we're equal with angels. But he came to earth as a man who was in creation lower than the angels. Now, don't get me wrong. God's intent from the beginning was for man to be above the angels. But when he fell, he fell beneath the angels. There's a lot of things angels can do that we can't do. A lot of things that angels can do that mankind can't do. So in creation, man was created below the angels. Unsaved man is still below the angels. So when Jesus defeated him in his humanity... He defeated him as a lesser being and that's why he's crowned with glory and honor and seated at the right hand of the Father now. That's why God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. As a result, Jesus on the earth was limited. There were things that the devil could do and things that the angels could do that Jesus couldn't do in his humanity. But once he was raised from the dead and he received a redeemed and glorified body just like you and I will get at the rapture, now he's superior to the angels in every regard. You and I, as having made Jesus the Lord of our lives, are superior to the angels in position. And one day, when we, when Jesus comes back for the church and the rapture takes place and our bodies are changed, we'll be above them in creation too. We will rule the angels, the Bible says, as men. When Jesus came to the earth before, uh, uh, before the virgin birth, every time that he came to the earth, he appeared as a man... Or he appeared in, in some form of deity, but he never stayed. He always returned back to heaven. But once he came to the earth through his birth in the manger, he took on flesh and he remains flesh for eternity. He's in heaven with a flesh and bone body. He's the only human being in, uh, in heaven at this point in time. Now, I don't know exactly what that means about uh, Enoch and Elijah because they were taken up bodily. I don't know what happened to them. But I know they can't have something before the church has it because they're types and shadows rather than the real thing. So they must be there in spirit form too. Jesus is always going to be there in in, uh, in physical form, in a human, a glorified human body. Jesus will always maintain the same marks of the crucifixion that he had when he was killed. Not you and me. There's no spots or blemishes in us when our redeemed bodies come. We're made new and whatever's wrong with us, if, there, if somebody has a deformity or somebody has something wrong with their body, maybe they've had it since birth or maybe they got something through an accident or injury or whatever, that body will be repaired like new, like it never happened. Not so with Jesus. Jesus always maintained the marks. He'll always be an evident sign to us of our redemption throughout all eternity. So he identifies Jesus as God. He identifies Jesus as humanity. And then he tells how that Jesus came to the earth, how he became one of us. And for that reason, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And for that reason, chapter 2 ends with him saying, therefore, as a high priest, he's able to aid, or King James says, succor, It means aid or relieve. It means as our high priest, he is able to provide every human help possible. Now think about what that means. That means Jesus doesn't have anything to learn or experience to gain so he can be a good high priest better a hundred years from now than he can be today. He's the perfect high priest. Now, for that reason, chapter 3 starts with a whole new attitude toward the reader. Up until this point in time, he's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking about Jesus' relationship with the angels. He talks a little bit about man's relationship to angels because of Jesus' work. But he starts off in chapter 3 and says, Wherefore, because of these things we've said, in other words, Wherefore, holy brethren. Why does he start calling these people holy? Some of the people that are reading this aren't even saved. They're not his target audience. He certainly wants to convince those that aren't saved that are going to read this or hear this uh, teaching However it it happened, somebody probably stood up in the congregation and read these, at least initially, until they made other copies. So his target audience is for any Jew, any person that's there, to hear the truth, and if they're not saved, to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. But he's talking to people that are saved. He's talking to Jews that are saved. Now, why would Jews that are saved need to know the things that he's trying to say? because the condition of the church, particularly in Jerusalem, and, and the, the emissaries that the Jerusalem church would send out, was to mix the law with Christianity. In other words, they didn't know what to think about Jesus, so they just kind of accepted, okay, this Jesus stuff, that's fine, whatever. But you still have to keep the law of Moses. So they're trying to combine the two. And that never works. You know that doesn't work in your own life. You try to live according to what the Bible says and then keep some kind of rule or regulation that man or denomination or religion has imposed upon you and it does nothing but rob you and make you feel like you've fallen short. Never works. So now he changes the tenor. He says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. That means they have to be saved then, doesn't it? Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The word consider is the key word in this verse. The word consider means focus your attention on it and don't turn away. You remember in Romans chapter 4, he said, talked about Abraham having received the promise of a child after his body stopped functioning, his and Sarah's bodies had stopped functioning in a way that would enable them to have children. He said, Abraham considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. But looking under the promise of God, in other words, if he didn't consider his body, if he didn't focus his attention on his body, what's he focused his attention on? Looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief. In other words, he considered the word. That's what Paul is telling these Christian, these uh, Jewish Christians to do. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, what does he do? He uses an Old Testament term and a New Testament term. He's saying, forget this going back and forth and mixing together stuff. He's the high priest, that's representative of the Old Covenant. He's a worthy high priest, better than any high priest that's ever been. He's going to talk about better than Moses. He's going to talk about better than Aaron. He's going to talk about better than Melchizedek. But now he uses a New Testament term. He uses a term that's not used in the Old Covenant. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession." Yeah, he fulfilled the Old Testament part. He takes that place now. By the way, if there are any members of the priesthood that are in Jerusalem that are reading this, what do you think this is saying to them? It's saying you don't have a place anymore. What if the high priest is in the church at Jerusalem and hears this letter? Now Jesus is the high priest. Well, what am I then? What's Paul saying? Paul saying we don't need a high priest anymore? Well, yeah, he is. Without coming right out and saying it, he's going to prove it through the back door. Actually, he already has. He showed that Jesus is a better high priest than any other man can be because he was God and man. So he says, says, consider, focus your attention on the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also, here's a comparison, as also Moses was faithful in all his House. Okay, hold your finger here, but turn back to chapter 1. Paul starts this letter by the Holy Ghost by talking about time periods. Let me read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. It says, God, who at sundry times, that means different time periods, and in diverse manners, different ways, spoke in time past. See that phrase? Spoke in time past. In other words, he's saying the time that was past, not the time now, but time that was just past was God speaking to us through the prophets and the fathers. That means Abraham and Moses. He says that's past. That's right out of the gate. God has talked to us in different ways in different times. In the last time, the time that's just past, he talked to us Through the fathers and the prophets. Well, what time was that? That was the time of the law. But in these last days, verse 2, hath in these last days. In other words, the time that we're now in. time that was past was the time of the law. The time that we're now in has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom, notice the last phrase, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, we looked over in Colossians chapter 1 several weeks ago. Verses 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there. And, um, uh, and it talks about by him, by Jesus, were all things made that were visible and invisible. Things in heaven and things in an earth. It goes into great detail in saying that God made all things by Jesus and for him. And then it talks about his conquest. It talks about how he defeated Satan and then he was elevated and made heir of all of these things. Paul tells the same thing to the, to the Hebrews. But doesn't go into the same detail. But if we know that he made all things. Invisible and invisible, visible and invisible. That means he made everything here on the earth. That we can see. That means everything in the Genesis account of creation. Jesus did that. The Garden of Eden. Jesus did that. The sun, the moon, the stars. Jesus did that. Anything we can see. Jesus did that. Well, what about stuff we can't see? Well, stuff we can't see happened before the Genesis account of creation. The angels created beings. So that means Jesus created the angels too. And that sets the stage for him talking about Jesus being superior to the angels. Well, the creator is always greater than the creation, so that's a pretty good starting point, right? But notice it says that in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and by whom he also made the worlds. Now, this word worlds means ages. It's talking about Time periods. Now we talked about this a little bit, and I won't go into much detail about it, but there were different dispensations or different periods of times. Dispensations just means period of time. There were different dispensations. The first dispensation, once Adam and Eve were placed on the earth, was the age of innocence. There was a time period of innocence. Then they fell. Well, what happened when they fell? Now there's no innocence anymore. Now they know. They have a knowledge of good and evil. There's no innocence anymore. Before they were innocent, they didn't know good and evil. They didn't know the difference. They only knew good. That's why it was innocence. After that became conscience. After that became human judgment. Everybody was left pretty much to do whatever they thought was right because there was no law. The Bible says sin is not imputed where there is no law. There was no law given during the age of conscience. Then men started multiplying. The earth began to be repopulated again. And then it was left to human judgment. In Noah's day, there was no law of God. He told people, Noah preached to people for a hundred years before the flood came. It took him about a hundred years to build the ark. He preached to people that a flood was coming, that judgment was coming. And there was protection. Come get in the ark with me. It was a type of Jesus. Come get in with us and uh, me and my family. And nobody would do it. Where's the law of God? Where's the plan of salvation in that? It's a type, it's an example of the plan of salvation, but there was no law of God available to them. It was judgment because they were operating according to their own human reasoning. Well, after that came Abraham. Abraham was the age of promise. Abraham had to promise. He didn't have a law. God's direction to Abraham is go where I tell you to go, obey me, and I'll bless you, and I'll make you a blessing, and I'll bless you, I'll make your seed as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. No law, just promise. After that came Moses. Moses was the age of the law. After that was the age of the church. After that came Jesus, and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection instituted the age of the church. And after the age of the church comes the age of the millennium. Those are the only dispensations we know about. There are more. We just don't know what they are. The Bible says in Ephesians that in the ages to come, God will show unto us the richness of his goodness. In other words, it's going to take God many, many different time periods in the future after we get to heaven to show us just how good and how big and how wonderful he is. I have no idea what that means, but that thrills me every time I say it. I don't know why you'd have time periods in eternity. Now, here, here's something we need to get in, get in, in, in our, correct in our thinking. Of, at least I do. I had to. Maybe you're smarter than me, so this never was an issue for you. Everything God makes is is based on containers. Everything he does. Everything he makes. As a matter of fact, I'll uh, well, tell you what, I'm going to read to you. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and read to you from Hebrews chapter 11. Because this uh, this verse of Scripture has to do with the same line of thought. And then we'll cover it again when we get over there. Notice it says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3, it says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed. you see that word worlds? It's the same word worlds over in chapter 1 in verse 2. He's talking about the ages. Now, we know that Jesus made the world, physical world. We understand that, so that would apply too. But specifically, the context that he's talking about are the ages, time periods. He said, by faith, we understand that the worlds, the ages, or the dispensations, were framed. The word framed means just what we expect it to be. If you you build a house, you have to frame it. You have to create boundaries. You make it a container. A house is a container. The front door is the boundary of that container. We're containers. He gives us bodies. You don't live outside of your body. You live within your body. A tree is a container. The bark is the boundary. Everything God makes is a a container. God works in organized fashion. He says words are containers. They can carry either faith or they can carry unbelief. Everything God makes is a container. Fruit is made as a container. An orange has a peel. That's the container. But you take an orange apart and it's got sections. There are containers within containers. The Bible talks about Ezekiel's vision of the future. It was a wheel in a wheel. If you understand that everything God makes is containers and what he saw was time, when you understand that everything God makes is containers or it has a container aspect to it, then you can understand how Ezekiel could see time as a wheel within a wheel. But see, here's the part that we don't think. We recognize, I mean, when, when we talk about things being containers, you think, well, okay, I've never heard it spoken like that or referred to like that. But yeah, that makes sense. But when it comes to time, we think time is just this giant blob. We think of eternity and it's just like it's this run-on, never-ending whatever. But the Bible talks about ages even after we get to heaven. So in other words, God places time in containers. And that's a real important point when Paul is trying to prove to the Jews who Jesus is. It says the worlds, the time periods, were framed by the word of God. Back to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. So it says, Jesus, we're supposed to focus our attention on Jesus being the apostle and high priest of our profession, who was faithful unto him that appointed him. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him. Jesus is the executor. He's the one that executes the plan of God. God's the one who makes the plan. Always. The Holy Spirit is always the one that reveals the plan. They never deviate. The, the three in one, the Godhead, never deviates from that description or that activity. Jesus, God's always the planner. God's plan of redemption that he established from before the creation of the worlds. Jesus is the executor. He's the one that executed the plan of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the one that reveals the plan of redemption to us. It's always those three things. That's why they're united in purpose as well as character. So it says, Jesus was faithful unto him. The word faithful is a little little misleading in the way that it's translated. It means ever faithful. In other words, he was faithful while he was here. He'll always be faithful. In other words, he won't deviate from what God appointed him to do. So it says, Jesus was faithful unto him, God that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. The house that it's talking about is Moses' time period. He's saying Moses was faithful just like Jesus in his time. You think about all the prophets, you think about all the stories in the Bible, I challenge you to find anybody that made fewer mistakes than Moses, other than Jesus. I'm talking about Old Testament stuff. David was a man after God's own heart. Man, David messed up all over the place. Elijah was one that did great signs and wonders. He's the one that wound up under the juniper tree, complaining he was the only one that was left, whining, oh God, take my life too. You can't find one Old Testament prophet. You can't find one man of God that was used in the Old Testament that made fewer mistakes than Moses. He made one that we know of. Now, there's a couple of other things, like he wouldn't circumcise his son. There was a couple of things to begin with. He complained to God, you know... Religious denominational teaching tells us that Moses was a stutterer. The Bible never says that. We assume that he was a stutterer, stutterer because God said, or because when he was talking to God in the burning bush, he said, "I can't talk." Well, if you look at the things Moses talked to the people of Israel about, he didn't have any problem talking. Why did he say, "I can't talk"? He's trying to dodge the plan of God. He's trying to dodge God's. Uh, purpose or what God's telling him to do now I know none of you have ever done that but Moses did do that before he knew but but you look at the mistakes other than one mistake where he hit the rock when he was supposed to speak to it and messed up God's example that's the only mistake he made once he knew who God was I don't think we can hold him responsible for the stuff before then, but you judge that for yourself I heard one person say that God has a sense of humor. Here's the way God's sense of humor works. When Moses tried to get out of, his, uh, out of God's direction to go speak to the people and speak to, Moses, or speak to Pharaoh first and then speak to his people, Moses said, oh, I can't talk. And so he said, I'll give you Aaron. Dear Lord, thanks. Aaron messed up everything. Finally, by the end of the, 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 the time that Moses was leading the children of Israel, you don't see Aaron even involved. Moses sat him down and told him, shut up. Heard one fellow say it this way, nothing frustrates a good speaker like a poor speaker. And apparently that's what God did with Moses. He says, oh, okay, speaking's your problem, huh? Take your brother. What a mess that turned out to be. So he says, just as Jesus is ever faithful, Unto God who appointed him, Moses was faithful in his time. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He's talking about Jesus. And notice he keeps calling him a man. He's God, but he emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man to become just like you and me. And that's why he calls us brethren. That's why he just called them brethren. We're all brothers together because of what Jesus did. This man, Jesus, is counted of more glo- worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he has builded the house he that has built it who he has inasmuch as he who has builded the house has more honor than the house in other words he's saying the reason Jesus has more glory in this context the reason Jesus is worthy of more glory is because Jesus is the one that made the time period that Moses operated in He's the creator of the time period of Moses. Now, folks, what is the Jews' problem with Christianity? The Christianity that Paul's preaching, the Christ that that Paul is preaching, Christ crucified, that Paul is preaching cuts Moses out. That's what their whole problem is. Where's Moses? We can't let go of Moses Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, he is saying Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because he made the time that Moses lived in. He made the house, the time period, the dispensation of the law that Moses operated in and that carried on that you're still trying to keep. See his point? You understand now why Jesus had to be presented to them as God who died that's why he spent so much time talking about the angels in chapters one and two. Verse four, for every man, every house is builded by some man. He's using a natural house as an example. He's saying, which is greater, the house or the person that builds the house? Every house is built by somebody, but he that built all things is God. Well, he's already explained to him in chapter one and verse two how that worked. God did it by Jesus. Jesus is the creator of all things. God's the planner. Jesus is the creator or the one that executes the plan. So he said, The one that built all things is God. He calls him man. He calls Jesus man and he calls him God. And you're holding on to Moses? See the point? Now, this is why they kept trying to kill Paul because they didn't want to turn loose to Moses. At least the unsaved ones did. The unsaved Jews. We're trying to kill Moses. Moses is already dead. (laughs) The unsaved Jews are coming from Jerusalem, sent by the high priest to try to kill Paul, to stone him, to beat him, to cause him trouble, get him thrown in jail. Time after time, situation after situation. Why? Because they won't turn loose of Moses. And Paul is saying, why in the world do you want to hold on to Moses? Jesus is the one that made the time period that the law ruled in. But he's not through talking about the law. Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Verse 5, and Moses barely was faithful in all of his house. He's not knocking Moses. Man, Moses was the guy. He was faithful in all of his house in his time period. Moses did everything he was supposed to. In his time period. He provided the law that lasted until the end of his time period. Now, I'm not talking about the end of Moses' life. I'm talking about the end of the age of the law. That ended with Jesus' crucifixion. Moses was verily verily was faithful in all of his house as a servant. What was Moses during the age of the law? He was a servant. And he was the best servant you could have presiding over a wicked and rebellious bunch of people. And I'm not just talking about Moses' life. That was the true even after Moses was off the scene and, the, and the, the Israel continued to, to use the law. He said Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant. For what purpose? For a testimony. What's a testimony? A testimony is something that witnesses to something else. If I give testimony to a crime that I that I witnessed... What am I doing? I'm telling somebody what happened. The testimony in and of itself is nothing, but it provides information towards something else or in some other context. So he says Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. In other words, he's saying everything about the age of the law, everything about the dispensation of law, everything about the law of Moses was a testimony of that which was to come next. What came next? The church age. That's why the law is an example to us. Not something we're supposed to keep. That's why the Ten Commandments. People want to make such a big deal about the Ten Commandments. Let's put them in. Let's hang the Ten Commandments in the schoolrooms. Well, look, folks, I'm I'm all for hanging whatever Bible we can put in the in the public schools. But the Ten Commandments don't belong to us. Well, okay, let's put the Lord's Prayer in there. That doesn't belong to us either. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against any of those things, and I'm not saying people had the wrong plan or or had the wrong motive in doing it, but that doesn't belong to any of us. If you still try to live under those things, both of those were during the age of the law. If you're going to put something up that changes people's lives, tell them who they are in Christ. Let's put 1 Corinthians 13 on the school walls and see what happens. Let's put 2 Corinthians 5.17 on the school walls and see what happens. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You want to change people's hearts, you don't go back to the Old Testament. You go to the New. So Moses was faithful in all of his house, or his age, his time period, his dispensation, as a servant. Best that Moses ever got was a servant. As faithfully as he was, he never rose above being a servant. And his age was a testimony... For those things which were to be spoken after, verse 6, but Christ, here's the comparison, here's the contrast, but Christ is a son. You want to know the difference between the law and Christianity? The age of the the law and the age of the church? You know the difference? Under the age of the law, you can only be a servant. Israel, for all of the things God did for them, for all the signs and wonders he showed them, the best they ever got was a servant. Under the church, every person is a son, a child of this word son means a child. Male or female, it means we're all children of God. Which is better, children or servants? Who do you treat better, your kids or the people that work for you? I hope you're good to both. But there's no contest as far as relationship is concerned, is there? But Christ is the son over his own house. Now, this word house is the same word house. He was talking about Moses. Now we're in a different time period. We're in a different dispensation. And folks, if Paul can get the Jews to understand that, he's got it. He'll get them to turn loose of Moses. Okay, Moses was for a purpose. It was great. Those were good days. But that day is over. Now we're in the age of the church. And that that church age lasts until the rapture. But Christ is a son over his own house. Now what is that house? What is that time period? What is it that Jesus is building? What are we supposed to see out of the church age? Whose house are we? The law was a structure. What God built through Moses was a structure, a law of ordinances, a set of rules. You don't have a set of rules. That's not what Jesus is building. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? What's he building? Is he building buildings? No, we need buildings. Is he building Physical things, no, we need some physical things to get the work done for us to be able to congregate, for us to be able to, to, to worship together and things like that. Those are necessary things, but that's not what he's building. If we need it, he'll help us build it. But that's not what he's building. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, he's saying, I'll build you. How? By the revelation of the Holy Ghost of what the Word says Jesus did for you. That's how you grow to be a son now, there's a difference. There are several different words that are used for son. One means infant child. One means grown-up child. This is a word that means grown-up child. You let the Holy Ghost... When somebody gets saved, what's the most important thing they need to do? I grew up in the Baptist church. You know what they told us? They said, as soon as you get saved, you need to go reach somebody for Jesus. You know what happened? Many times, brand-new Christians, baby Christians... Well intended, Uh, don't get me wrong, I mean, let's reach people, that's great, but well intended Christians would go out and get talked out of what they had because they didn't know who they were. You know the number one need for somebody when they first come into the family of God? Learn. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my burden is easy and my yoke, for my, what did you say? My yoke is light and my burden is easy. Folks, knowledge is everything. Knowledge of who we are in Christ is everything. That's how you grow. It's the only thing that makes you grow. Peter said, desire the sincere milk milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Well, if it's the sincere milk of the word, you don't give babies meat. He's just saying little baby stuff about the word will cause you to grow. Well, if he's saying the word causes you to grow, then what else will do it? Nothing. So he said, but Jesus Christ was as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now let me tell you what this verse is not saying. Because a lot of times people get this and, and they get confused and they think, okay, well that means if you do certain things, if you, if you hold out, if you, if you, you have to do things just right or else you lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. Because the rest of the chapter is going to be taking, about taking hold of what Jesus did for us. So what he's saying is, here's how you take hold of it. Here's how you appropriate the things that, that Jesus accomplished for you. So where he says, if we hold our confidence, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end, this is going to have a lot to do with the, the example that he uses next. The hold fast the confidence, the word confidence means boldness to speak. Now you tell me, how much Does boldness to speak have to do with you appropriating the things that Jesus purchased for you? Everything. Why? Because it's the confession of your faith that takes possession of what Jesus did. You don't get saved until you confess your faith in Jesus crucified and being raised from the dead. So it's your boldness to speak that takes hold of salvation to begin with. It's your boldness to speak, many times in the face of contradicting circumstances... That causes you to take hold of healing when there's sickness attached to your body. It's your boldness to speak the word of God concerning provision many times in the face of impoverished looking circumstances or situations that causes you to take hold of the blessings of provision. It's your boldness to speak that causes everything that Jesus purchased for you to become yours in reality. That's what he's talking about. That's the point that he's making to them. And the point that he's making is very simply, it's not by law anymore because we're in a different age. It's by your boldness to speak that you take hold of what Jesus did. That's how you become a son. That's how you get the benefits of sonship. Verse 7, wherefore, wherefore is again because of these things we've said. Now, the last thing he just said was he's talking about Christ as a son in his own house and we're that house. We're that time period. We meaning the church. Holy brethren, verse 1. We, the holy brethren, are the time period. Now that time period comes to an end. We don't know when it is. We know what the, the, the boundary is going to be. The end point will be, but we don't know when the end point is. So he says, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith. Interesting the way he now starts talking about the Holy Ghost. Why? Because he said in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, God used to speak to us in times past through the prophets, but now he's speaking to us through his Son. How is he speaking to us through his Son? The Holy Ghost says things to us. The Holy Ghost says things to us, and now he's going to refer back to an Old Testament scripture. He's going to use what they know is in the Old Testament, and they know the context of the things that were said. He's going to quote from uh, Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, I think it is, something, something around there. That's a Psalm of David. And it refers specifically, David is speaking by the Holy Ghost then, and the Holy Ghost is still speaking to us now the same truth about an event that took place. And here's what he describes Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Well, what day was that? Let's keep reading. When your fathers tempt me, tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. Okay, so when he's talking about the day of temptation, he's not talking about a 24-hour period then, is he? He's saying this went on for 40 years. So day means time period, not 24 hours. In this context, at least. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts and have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So what is verse 6 talking about? Holding fast the confidence and hope of rejoicing unto the end. He's talking about taking hold of what Jesus has done and entering into his rest. And he says that comes through the boldness of faith. Now if you go back and look, and we won't take time to do it, but if you go back and look... Paul changes a little bit of the wording in this uh, this quote. He knows what it says. He knows exactly what it is. He changes it even from the Septuagint to make the point, to emphasize certain things. Now, what point is emphasized? Well, in order to know that, we're going to have to go back to Exodus chapter 17. We'll close with this. Pick up there next time in Hebrews chapter... Three Exodus chapter fourteen is where they cross the Red Sea. Exodus chapter fifteen is the song of gratitude. He has triumphed gloriously. the horse and the rider fall, come, fall into the sea. The last part of Exodus chapter fifteen is where they come to the waters of Marah, the bitter waters, they're poisonous waters, and they don't have any water to drink. and so they bring it to Moses' attention and Moses gets instruction from the Lord to throw a tree, literally a branch or limb of a tree, into the water. Now this must, folks, don't think little pond in the backyard. This is enough water for millions of people. We're talking about a huge stand of water here. Uh, They've done some studies on uh, the army, did some studies many years ago. This was back in the 50s on what it would have taken, the supplies, the daily supplies that it would have taken to feed the children of Israel based on the different estimates, whether it was 2 million people or 7 million people, however much it was. And they did certain estimates based on conservative numbers. If it was the lowest number, it would take this. And, and the, the army officers were astounded because the amount of supplies, the trains, the length of the trains and rail cars that it would have taken to feed and, and supply water for these people just for one day... Was astounding. They said logistically, it can't be done. But God did it. Somehow. So when it talks about water, we're not talking about a little pond where, you know, several million people are going to take turns and drink a little sip. We're talking about water. But these waters are poisonous. Apparently, they're chemically tainted. Maybe they're sulfurous or something like that. And the people can't drink it. So Moses is instructed by the Lord to take a tree, which symbolizes the cross, and throw the tree into the waters, which symbolizes Jesus' crucifixion being thrown into the midst of mankind. And it made the waters sweet. And God proved them there and said, I'm the Lord that healeth thee. In other words, I will make provision for you so that you are taken care of physically in any way that you need. They experienced that in chapter 15. I want you to make sure that you understand that. Chapter 16, God sends manna. So the first things that happen when they come out of Egypt, first things that happen after they cross the Red Sea, God gives them water and he gives them food. He takes care of them physically. And he says, this won't run out. It'll be here every day. Just handle it like this. You get just what you need for one day. And on the Sabbath day, get enough for two days. That's all. So there's no question that they're experiencing supernatural provision, right? That brings us to chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Shouldn't be a problem. We didn't have water at the other place, and God, uh, well, we had water, but it was poisonous water, and God made the water uh, pure for us, drinkable. But, here's their attitude, wherefore the people did chide with Moses. The word chide is the word revile. You ever had anybody revile you? That means they call you names. They're calling Moses' names. It's Moses' fault. Now, folks, before we read any further, let me remind you something about what they're experiencing. The Bible says in chapter 14, before... Pharaoh comes after him and tries to, to trap him at the Red Sea. God showed them the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar, of, uh, the pillar of fire by night. Chapter 16, when he tells him about the manna, it says the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So the cloud's still there. In other words, they know God's with them because all they got to do is look over that giant pillar of cloud there. And at night, if they're wondering, all they have to do is peek out their tent and see that giant pillar of fire. There's no question that God is showing them every minute of every day. I'm right here with you. But they get to a place where it looks like they don't have anything to to drink. And what do they do? They start calling Moses names. They began cursing Moses. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, 'Why, why chide you with me? What are you calling me names for? Why are you upset with me? What did I do to you? Folks, let me tell you a little secret. The people's problem isn't with Moses. The people's problem is they don't have faith to overcome their circumstance. And when people don't have faith to overcome their circumstance, here's how they react. If I had a dollar for every person that said I'm the reason that they left the church and and, and it was God that told them to do it because of my wrong preaching or something like that, I'd be a rich guy. When have you ever heard me say anything other than what the Bible says? When have you ever heard me say anything that doesn't back up what, or doesn't uh, illustrate what the Bible says and tell you, don't believe me, believe what the Word says? But it's my fault? Seriously? That's always a sign that somebody can't believe past their circumstances. When people start calling you names because you're believing God, it means they don't have any faith to do the same thing. Don't let it bug you. Realize that's just the way it works. So Moses says, why revile you or why chide you with me? Wherefore and wherefore do you tempt the Lord? Do you not realize when you're talking against me, you're talking against God? Now, what's tempting God about this? They're saying God can't handle this. Folks, that's always what tempting God is. When you look at your circumstances and say, this is too big. Now, now please understand. They've got the waters of Mara to think back to if they want to. They've got manna every day. Manna follows them. Wherever they go. It's not just in one place as long as they're camped there. It goes wherever they go. Somebody explain that. It goes wherever they go and stops wherever they just left. They can see with their eyes the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Anytime you look at a circumstance... And say, God's not big enough for this. Anytime the devil speaks to you and says, well, God may have paid your rent the last 22 months, but he's not going to do it this time. This is the month you're going under. Really? Now here's something else you need to realize. Did God lead them to Rephidim? Yeah. Pillar of cloud took them right there and stopped. So what does that tell us? Does God lead us into places that looks like there's not going to be enough? Yeah, he does. What effect or what impact should that have on us? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. One of my favorite stories is where Jesus told the disciples, after he fed the 5,000, he sends everybody away. And while he's sending them away, he tells his disciples, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He said, let us go to the other side. He goes and prays. They get in the middle of the sea in the middle of the night, and boy, they're their boat's being tossed back and forth and and, uh, and and all this kind of stuff. Jesus comes walking to them on the sea. Two experiences that Jesus had with his disciples on the boat. One's when he got in the boat and went to sleep, and the boat looks like it's going to be swamped, going to drown, going to tip over, capsize. Jesus said, before they ever started, let us pass over to the other side. Folks, I want you to understand the difference... In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, they could look at something physical. In the New Testament, Jesus is with you in the boat. Even if you can't see. Him. That's what they couldn't get. Now, remember what, Jesus, what uh, Paul said about the age of the law, the dispensation of the law. All these things were a testimony for that which would be spoken after. In other words, this is a sign of what it's like with you and God now. So Moses said, what are you reviling me for? What are you chiding against me and why are you tempting God? And the people thirsted there for water and the people murmured against Moses and said, wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt? Didn't mind that in chapter 14 when Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. Didn't mind that in chapter 15 when you're singing the song of deliverance. Now all of a sudden things get a little tough, get a little uncomfortable and it's like, oh my goodness, what did you do this for, Moses. Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Was this God's plan all along? Still the way the devil tempts you, isn't it? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. Literal translation of that is they've got rocks in their hands. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee the elders of Israel, and your rod wherewith you smote the river. Take it in your hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock. Strike the rock. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Masa and Meribah. Those two names mean temptation and reviling. One, one person said that's the equivalent of saying griping and grumbling. Changed the names because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, they decided not. That's why they're ready to kill Moses. Now, why does Paul use this example? He's talking about Moses being faithful as a servant in his house or in his dispensation. But Jesus as a son in his own house. Maybe you better turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 3 to see this real quickly before we close. Why does he use this example? Because remember the two comparisons is Moses in the age of of the law, Jesus in the church age. Because they're ready to do away with Moses because they don't like the circumstances they're in. What are the Jews doing when they're trying to tear up the churches that Paul establishes? They're trying to do away with Jesus because they don't like the circumstances of the preaching. They don't like this preaching. The law of Moses has been fulfilled. They don't like this preaching about doing away with it. So what are they doing? Even though some of those that are saved are mixing together the law and and grace together, And that never works, that never fits. When I use the word grace, I'm talking about the completed work of Jesus. And so what does Paul say? Verse 12, take heed, therefore, brethren. In other words, don't make their mistake. Don't make their mistake. Now, folks, here's the good news. The good news is for us, since the Old Testament is just a type and a shadow, it's a testimony of the day that we live in, the age that we live in, where Jesus is better than what Moses had. Think about what that means. That means just as is impossible as it would have been for Moses to not have been delivered and the children of Israel for, to not have been provided for with water coming out of a rock. How does water come out of a rock? There's only two possibilities. One is God created water from rock or God knew where the spring was that nobody else knew. I like that one personally. He knew the exact spot for Moses to hit and enough water to feed, to, to provide for millions of people. Do you realize the size lake that's going to have to be? And it's all just being held back by a little rock that Moses is going to break with a stick. Not a sledgehammer, not a drill, a stick. Now, if you look at that stick, you wouldn't think that's a water maker. But that's how God works. It's more sure for you because you've got a better covenant established on better promises. You can be right in the middle of a desert, right in the middle of where it's not working for anybody, and it'll work for you. If you're in the place where God led you to be, it'll work for you. If you've got to kick a rock, and then the provision of the Lord comes. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the children of Israel who almost passed up every good thing that God had provided because of their mouth. That's the problem the Jews have. They're not willing to go for this confession and accepting what Jesus has already accomplished for us. They still say you've got to keep the law. They say you've got to make the sacrifices. They say you've got to keep the Sabbath. They say you've got to keep doing the same things that kept them in the place of tempting and disbelieving God in the old covenant. He says don't make their mistake. It's just as true today as when David spoke it in Psalm 95 pardon not your hearts. In other words, accept the way that God is speaking to us today. I don't know about you, but I've had some times where it seemed to me like, I, I can't say for sure, but it seemed to me like I've heard God speaking to me in an audible voice. Any of you ever had an experience like that? Now, the reason I can't say that for sure is because nobody was there to tell me. I've heard Brother Hagin tell stories about when he was in the car and he heard a voice It sounded to me like it was coming over his shoulder. And so he asked other people in the car, did you all hear that? Well, nobody did hear that. It seemed to him that it was audible, but it wasn't, because if it had been audible, they would have heard it too. And so there are times where we do hear the voice of God that way. But you know the way that you hear the voice of the Lord most often? We sometimes hear the voice of the Lord where it's an inward voice, and we know that it's the still, small voice. Sometimes it's an inward witness. But you know the way that you're going to hear the voice of the Lord most often? The written word. The written word. And notice what Paul is telling them to accept accept the preaching of Jesus as just as real, just as supernatural as the Old Testament law of Moses that came down written with the finger of God. Don't be like them and harden your hearts and not accept what Moses was going to give them. At the point in time that Exodus 17 takes place, they don't even have the Ten Commandments. All they've got is Moses saying, God told us, told me to tell you that if we followed him, he'll take us to the promised land. They don't have anything to look at. Oh, yeah, except that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. You'd think that'd be enough, but it never was. It still came down to them having to be willing to accept what Moses said. Paul is saying it's a new day. It's a new dispensation. Now, he set certain people in the ministry, set certain people in positions, apostles and prophets, in the body of Christ to speak on his behalf by the Holy Ghost. Folks, one of the greatest things, I just read an article that... uh, you guys know who Daniel Lappin is, don't you? The Jewish rabbi? Some of you do. Okay, he puts out a, a newsletter every month. I love to read his stuff. I, I, I don't agree with all of his conclusions because he's still living according to the Old Covenant. But he's got some insight into some of the, the, the Jewish ways and uh, the way things operate and, and the way the Jews think and stuff like that. I just love it. And one of the things in his, uh, his current newsletter is talking about when you're in a desert place and about how important it is to always change. He talked about whenever God brought the children of Israel to a place where he was going to make a big shift to them, he would always have them to be organized in a certain way and then tell them to do certain things. But they didn't know where they are going to go. And he talked about that as far as thinking out of the box is concerned. He talked about that, applying it to business. He talked about applying it to your personal life. So many times we get so so set in our thinking that this is the way it's going to be. How many times have you tried to believe God for something and you had in your mind, here's how it's going to work? It never works that way, does it? God never uses the way you think it's going to work. He just doesn't. Why? Because He never wants to get you to think He's only as big as you can think. That's why He always comes in from a different direction. Well, I think it's going to happen like this, so He'll come in over here. Well, it happened like this last time, so he'll come in from over here. He's always showing you that he's bigger than what you imagine him to be. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, to him be the praise and the glory. God's always going to be bigger than you can think. What does that say to us? It says you need to always be expanding your thinking. Be willing to accept the things of God from wherever they come. Balaam almost missed a real important message because it came through a donkey. Don't be like that. He's telling the Jews the same thing. Take heed, brethren. Don't miss things. Don't be hard-hearted like the Jews were, like they started in Exodus 17 and kept on for 40 years. Don't be like they were. They never were willing to accept the law of Moses or the, the words of Moses. They fought Him all the way through. The next generation, they accepted what He said, but not the ones that were His contemporaries. Paul's saying, that's the dispensation we're in now too. God can use anybody to speak to us. Anybody at all. And His provision's always there. It doesn't matter if you're in a desert place. It doesn't matter if you're in a place where it looks like there's not enough. If God sent you there, there's plenty. It'll be a supernatural victory to come, but there's always plenty. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Thank you, Father, for the instruction that we have to know who we are in Christ. Father, we commit to you. When we find out who we are, we will hold fast the confidence of our faith and hold out the hope of our rejoicing to the end. We'll be bold to speak. We'll be bold to claim that which is ours. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.